Psalm chapter 25 is an acrostic. It means that it goes from Aleph to Tov in Hebrew. Every line is a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Please give your attention to God's word. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net." Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. In the olden days when the world was flat and scurvy was widespread, sailors sailed the high seas with great confidence by the stars. And today, scurvy is not widespread, And we don't need the stars because we have a GPS. But you should still fear the ocean. For millennia, sailors feared the ocean. They were scared of it. A better word instead of scared might be they respected it. But now we tend not to. Several years ago, off the coast of Thailand, some sailors set off on a fishing expedition and the uh, tide came in and the squalls came and broke up their boat. The entire crew went overboard and they were never seen again except for two Burmese fishermen who were on the crew. And with some very quick thinking, they jumped into the ice chest that was on board to keep the fish cold. And they floated on an ice chest inside a stinky ice chest with a few fish at their feet in order to save their life. They endured Cyclone Charlotte, and they were adrift at sea with no guidance whatsoever. 
Psalm 25 shows us David is adrift at sea. It is a multidisciplinary psalm. Please hear me. It is a psalm where David is all over the map. I told you earlier, it's an acrostic psalm. It goes all the way down the Hebrew alphabet. David talks about his enemies. He talks about his need for repentance. But the primary thing that comes out in this psalm that I want us to think about this morning is that David asks the Lord for guidance. One day this week, I met with four couples, all of whom were considering getting married or getting engaged in a relationship. And one day, guidance. Another day this week, several people told me that they were trying to think about grad school, what they're going to do after they get out of college, after their internship is over. What do they need? They need guidance. Some of you dads, you love your jobs, but you just don't feel that secure at work. And you need guidance for how to walk through the turbulent waters of your job, how to have a sense of joy in the midst of your job. It's hard. Some of you ladies in your jobs, you need the same thing. When we raise our children, oh my gosh, please pray for guidance for my family, for me. One of the high callings of the shepherds of our church, the elders of our church, is to help guide God's people. And we are broken sinners, and we do not do it perfectly, but we do have a resource that God has given us to give us the guidance we need. And we find it in Psalm chapter 25. In Psalm chapter 25, David shows us, and Jesus shows us through David's words, who is the person that God guides, how does God guide his people, and what are the results? Who does God guide, how does he do it, and what are the results? Do you need guidance this morning? Maybe this is just a sermon from me, because I certainly do. But let's look and see what God's word has to say. Who does God guide? If you do any elementary study in the Bible about guidance, undoubtedly Psalm 25, 4 to 5 will pop up on your concordance, in your Google search. It is a famous psalm of guidance. I want you to hear it. Make me to know your, your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. There are many a precious moments trinkets with that verse on it, I tell you. Who does God guide? Well, first of all, God guides those who confess themselves to be sinners. Notice what the psalm says. If you lower your eyes, it says, Good and upright is the Lord, verse 8. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Do you know what it means to be a sinner? To, me, to be broken? To know that you need Jesus more than anything else in all of your life? Listen, the other day, the other day, I lost it with my children. Now, when I get angry, I don't like get verbal. I get really quiet. But I was really frustrated. Have you ever been there? And I thought things that probably aren't legal to think. I was ashamed of it. And at the end of the day, I had to go to my little seven-year-old girl and I had to say, oh, honey, daddy is a sinner. I am so sorry that I lost my temper with you. And she goes, daddy, that's okay. Jesus forgives you and so do I. You have had a long day. <laughs> 
my children and my wife, my three sons, my daughter, and my wife, are sermons in shoes for me. Because they preach the gospel to me every day, and they remind me that I am a sinner. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 19? It's a story of the person from Owasso, Oklahoma. It's a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. He told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and he treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, O God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector who was probably the most vile person in that town because he was an extortioner. Everybody thought of him as a sinner. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, Jesus says, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, Jesus says, this man, this vile, wretched sinner who couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, not the religious man over this corner, this man the vile man walked away justified. What would it be like to be a church where the most vile people in town understand themselves to be sinners saved by grace? Wouldn't that be amazing? How much more amazing would it be if the religious could confess that? For years, sociologists said that people want to be able to have security, they want to be able to have peace, they want to be able to have friendship. They want to be known by other people. And the way that sociologists said that people did that was through religion. Certainly in the West, that was true. They had some kind of intimate encounter with God, whatever religion they may have professed. But in recent days, sociologists actually have said something new has happened. It's a new phenomena. They call it expressive individualism. And what it means and what it is is that we do not need anything else but ourself. Peace, to be known, to have security, comes from looking within. It means to have a personal, intimate experience with yourself. Like we used to trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding, but today we trust in ourself and we lean on our own understanding. And some of you are like Burmese fishermen stuck in an ice chest sailing the high seas with no GPS or paddle. Do you know that you're a sinner and that you need to be rescued? Those are the people that Jesus guides. And if you need more evidence, well, let's go to the great theologian Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt said, I found that my Christian upbringing was very stifling when I got untethered from the comfort of religion, it was not a loss of faith for me. It was the discovery of self. I had faith that I'm capable enough to handle any situation. Brad, you're in an ice chest on the ocean. <laughs> you need Jesus. But God can't guide you, friends, until you admit that you're a sinner. Whether you're a religious Pharisee like me or you're vile, because there's two ways to avoid Jesus. We run from him by being secular, living the life we want with no regard to God or religion, 
or you run to him by being as good as you possibly can so that Jesus doesn't bother you anymore. Both of those ways are vile. In fact, it is the religious who have a harder time receiving the grace of the gospel. Who does God guide? God guides the sinners. Secondly, who does he guide? God guides the humble. Look at verse 9. It says, he leads the humble in what is right. And in case we miss it, and teaches the humble his way. Humility is committed more than 200 times in the New Testament. It's replete throughout the whole text of Scripture, Old Testament and New. Humility literally means to bow one's face to the ground, to be of the dust. And humility, when you see it, is beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful to see a truly humble person. When I was a campus minister, I used to love at graduation to watch many of our students who were from the East. We had a lot of Korean students. And when they, they, would, they would date a girl, and they would want to meet her father. And their father would come. Sometimes they would come overseas for their graduation. And you would see these two Korean families meet. It was precious and beautiful. And it was customary for families when they met for the first time, if you were Eastern, that you would bow to one another. But that boy knew that when he met his future, hopefully, his fingers are crossed, father-in-law, he had to bow lower than his father-in-law as a sign of respect. And so I don't know where they got their flexibility, but they found it quick when their father-in-law came to introduce himself. And they would bow. Both of them would bow to each other. And that student, in his robe, dawn for graduation, would put his face in the dirt if he had to to get lower than the father-in-law. It's a beautiful picture of humility. Humility is beautiful, isn't it? Malcolm Muggeridge was a hardened cynic, a journalist. He was a Brit. And he was on assignment to go to Calcutta to study this Albanian nun named Teresa. And when he went to Calcutta and he saw Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Charity, he was so shocked by the utter humility that he saw in her that he wrote a book in 1971 that put Mother Teresa on the map. Nobody knew who she was until this book came out. And what did he call the book? Something Beautiful for God. Who does God lead? God leads the humble. This week in Osage County is the Osage County Cattlemen's Association Convention. Lauren's family's here because it's a big weekend in Osage County. And when you walk into this convention, you'll see that there are people in blue jeans and buttoned down with pearl snaps and cowboy hats to a man. And you cannot tell the difference between the ranch hands and the ranch owners, the multimillionaires and the guys who are just struggling to get by. Why? Because there is a culture of humility there. It's beautiful. It's beautiful for God. You want God to guide you? You have to be humble. He doesn't guide unless you're willing to be guided. Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, many of you have read it, one of the best business books out there. One of the most staggering revelations of that book for me was not the hedgehog principle or focusing on one small thing as an organization. The most striking thing to me was that when they studied all these corporations, all these CEOs, all these companies that were unbelievably successful, there was one common quality of the CEOs, and that was the CEOs were very self-effacing. 
they used plural pronouns, not singular pronouns. There was no I. It was always we. You want God to guide you? You have to want to be guided. You have to be humbled. When did humility become a virtue? Please stay with me and hear me. When did humility become a virtue? If you read the ancient literature, humility is never considered a positive virtue. Never. In Roman and Greco history, humility is always considered something to be avoided because it would make sense in a culture that prided itself on the pursuit of honor, the highest Greek virtue. You would never be humble with your peers or with your lessers. You would always want them to respect you, and you demanded respect. You boasted about your accomplishments. You demanded that they look up to you. And so pride and valor and honor became the virtues of the culture, and never was humility on any list, any list of virtues, until when? One word, until Jesus. It's true, you do the research. Jesus literally turned humility from a vice into a virtue, where? Not in his teachings, not in his teachings on the cross. It was only in the Jewish scriptures, amidst all the cultures of the world, where humility is considered a virtue. It was that way all the way from the very, very beginning. But it was shown to us in the wider culture to be not a vice, but to be a virtue at the cross. Because here was this man, stripped, naked, in public thoroughfare, in a public disgrace, who hung in the Roman world that prided honor and valor and respect, was so shocked that Jesus literally at that moment changed the rotational axis of how we understood humility. And humility for the first time became a virtue beyond the bounds of the Jews at the cross. You want to be guided? You've got to be humble. And how do you become humble? You see, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself so that you and me in our arrogant pride and our religious Phariseeism might be able to confess we are sinners and we need to be guided. We cannot get ourselves out of our ice chest. Who does Jesus guide? He guides those who can confess that they're sinners and he guides those who are humble. How does he do it? Let's look. How does God guide? Here is verse 4 that we read earlier. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. To make in Hebrew is to force somebody into form. It is to shape them and mold them. Who does God guide or how does he guide? God guides you through his providence. What is providence? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God's providence is his holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Not a sparrow falls from the sky except by the Father's sovereign command. 
Not a hair can fall from your head, we sometimes confess with the Heidelberg Catechism, except by his sovereign design. John Calvin said, the highest blessedness lies in acknowledge of providence. Ignorance of the providence of God is the cause of all impatience. And this is the reason why we are so quickly and on all trivial accounts thrown into confusion and often to become disheartened because we do not recognize the fact that the Lord cares for us. We learn that the only remedy for tranquilizing our minds is resting in the providence of God. The person that is in this possession of truth, that God is present with him, has what he may rest upon with security. My son has a baba, which is a blanket. Many of you, some of you, or some of you have babas. Some of you have... Many children have babas. They have blankets that they have to have all the time. And whenever he loses his baba, he freaks out. He has to have it with him all the time. And sometimes we just think God has forgotten about us. That God misplaced us like our blanket. That somehow God misplaced us like we're a toy or a trinket. But you know what? God never misplaces you. He always has you in the palm of his hand, and he is embracing you, and he is with you. He has never mistaken where you are. The life that you lead right now, he knows exactly why you're there. He knows exactly why you're here, because he wants you to be able to confess that you're sinners and be humbled under the beauty of the gospel, because he guides you through his providence. Well, some God he must be, somebody might say. If you only know my story, Blake, if you only knew my story, you cannot say, it's arrogant of you to just, it's easy for you, as a, you have to say things like that. I don't. Well, where was God in this time of my life? Listen, I don't know. God speaks adequately and thoroughly of what he wants us to be, but he doesn't tell us the specifics of why. He didn't tell Joni Erickson Tata why when she was 18 years old in 1967, she jumped off a cliff into a lake that looked very deep, but it was actually very shallow, and she broke her neck. And for two years, she had to learn to walk again, depressed, angry. She wanted to take her life. And God used a frowning providence to show a smiling face in Joni Erickson Tata's life to make her the one who leads the largest Christian organization to special needs children and adults, Joni and friends. And she will say to you that the greatest blessing God has ever given me is that wheelchair. Some of you have families that are not what you expected. Parents, some of you have children who have run from the Lord. They are not walking with Jesus. And you look at families who do have children who walk with Jesus and mm, it is so hard for you to be joyful for them. But you need to be humbled by God's providence in your life and to pray that your children, that God is not through with them and that he will one day bring them to himself. God works through his providence. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, William Cooper wrote. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Isaiah 42.3 says that a bruised reed he will not break, 
and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The hardest verse in the psalm for me is this verse that talks about waiting. It says, for you, vav, it's the vav word in Hebrew. For you, O Lord, I wait all day long. Some of you are waiting for guidance. You're in the ice chest, floating in a high seas, and you're waiting for God to speak to you. Waiting is a lost art of the Christian life, and if you're like me, you're not very good at it. But friends, we've got to become good at it. And to change our waiting from looking at all the things we don't have to being able to say with a sense of expectant hope that we are waiting for God's best in our life. And we are resting in his providential care for what he has given us right now. And we will bloom where we are planted because the only person whose opinion matters of you is Jesus's. And he has not lost you. He holds you in his arms and he sings over you his love. Do you believe that? Sometimes we run to verses that we've known for a long time and if you're new to Christianity, you hear verses like this. Like, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we say, yeah, right, Jesus. My, your yoke doesn't feel very easy, and your burden is crushing me. And then we hear stories about women like Kara Tippetts, who goes in for a routine medical exam one day and walks out realizing that cancer has pressed in on her and is stepping on her hard. A mother of four children, the wife of a church planter in the PCA in Colorado Springs. And she read this verse after her diagnosis with cancer, and this is what she writes. I will confess to you that this verse I highly regard, but I do not fully understand. If I am frank, I can go on and explain some humorous ways I've dealt with this passage. I have visualized wrapping my burden up and handing it over. I've prayed my burden over. I've imagined my burden being carried away by Jesus. But through my bald, emaciated days, this prayer, this verse, came out in one or two words. They were all I could muster. Help. Oh, help. Jesus, help. Mercy, have mercy, protect, protect my kids, help me, Jesus. I sometimes shudder looking at these pictures on her blog. She puts pictures of herself at various stages of her cancer. And if I look closely, if I look really closely, I was helped. I see that hand, Anna's hand lifting the burden as she rubbed my back. I see Jesus' help as my friend takes the vomit out of the bucket without being grossed out. I see this picture. This is my beautiful Jen behind the lens, weeping and loving me quietly by entering this place of suffering. Sometimes I struggle with this verse because I want this verse to mean that my burden is going to be taken away, that I'll be truly guided to safety. But if I look closely at this verse, it doesn't say that. You see, I very much have a picture of what a light burden and easy yoke looks like, and I'm pretty sure my picture isn't at all what Jesus means. When I look at what Jesus means, I am not angry. I am deeply comforted. I can. Kara Tippett's waited for a long time. And her four children waited for, her mom to get, for their mom to get well. And her husband Jason waited through agonizing sermon prep every week for his wife to get well. And on March of 2015, 
the Lord finally eased Kara Tippett's burden by bringing her home to himself. My little body has grown tired of the battle, she writes the last week of her life. The treatment is no longer helping, but what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath, and with it I pray that I would live well and fade well. By degrees of doing both, living and dying, as I have moments left to live, I get to draw my people close, kiss them, and tenderly speak love over them and over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder about heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus, and he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wandering over his love will cover us all, and it will carry us, carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. Listen, some of you are in ice chests floating on the ocean. Jesus is guiding you. Do you recognize your brokenness? Are you humble that you need his help? He leads you through his providence. But secondly, he leads you by his word. God guides us by his word. Look at verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Lead me in your truth. Lead me in your scriptures. Show me what I am to do. Some of you are wondering if you should marry somebody who's not a Christian. Lead me in your truth of what scripture says. Some of you are wondering, should I break the covenant I've made in my marriage? Friends, do what Scripture tells us to do. Not because Jesus is some killjoy, but because he is good. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, and he instructs sinners in the way. Do you believe that Jesus is good? Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In the Old Testament, they had his verbal word. Jesus says in the beginning, God, I, and he created the world. Jesus guided Israel out of the Red Sea, through the Red Sea by the power of his word. Jesus was the one before that who called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to form a people for himself. Jesus was the one who spoke to Elijah. Do you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19? Elijah, go on the mountain and pray. And this earthquake came, and God was not in the earthquake. This great wind came, and God was not in the word. And Jesus whispered to Elijah. Friends, Jesus whispers to you. He whispers to you through the living word of Jesus, who came at such a time when it had been fulfilled, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us out from under the law. And today, Peter says in 2 Peter, listen, we have something far greater than the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn comes and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture in God's word is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced was ever produced by the will of man, but it was spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All scriptures God breathed, useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Do you believe that? God will guide you. 
He guides you through his providence and he guides you by his word. He is guiding you. But you have to admit that you want his guidance. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you see the humility of Jesus naked, hanging on that cross with you on his mind? Guys, I cannot tell you what you should do this week in the specifics of your circumstances. But what I can tell you to be is somebody who knows their sin and who's moldable. He will not teach you. The elders of this church cannot lead you. God's word will not change you unless you're first broken by your utter need for Jesus. Because Jesus will mostly disagree with you and he never asks your opinion. And you have to be okay with that. These two Burmese fishermen were found hundreds of miles away from where their ship sank. And they were rescued by a cargo vessel. And friends, Jesus is rescuing you today and he's using a sermon to do it. Do not harden your hearts. You want guidance? See your Savior's arms open wide to you to bring you on board. Confess that you're a sinner and that you need grace. And humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God that in due time he might lift you up. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need deep peace and we need to be known and we need security. You created us to long for those things even as Adam did in the garden. And here you give them to us. You tell us who is the man who fears you. Him you will instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Lord, we long to be known and you tell us that we can have friendship with you for those who fear you. And you make known to us your covenant. And you give us your security, the thing that we long for. Put your eyes ever toward me, you tell us. For I will pluck your feet out of the net. Psalm 25, 15. Lord, give us guidance. In the midst of crying out for our enemies, in the midst of our confession of sin, oh, Father, would you give us guidance like you gave David in Psalm 25. And would you remind us of Jesus? Would you help us to be the people that you want to guide? This is our prayer, and we beg, beg you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.